0: Amen. Amen. You can be seated. We're in our second week of our Advent series and and as I mention it every year and I'll mention it every week that we do this is that we celebrate Advent here not not because we have a problem with just saying we celebrate Christmas, but Christmas really looks backwards. It looks back at the first coming of Christ. And I appreciate Advent because it causes us not just to look backwards, but also to look forward to His return. Now this year in our Advent themes, we're, we're not following the traditional hope, peace, joy, love themes as much. Those will be woven throughout. We're more looking forward. We're, we're really focusing in on, honing in on the second coming and His return as we, as we think about Advent this year. And as we do this, I I don't want to, I don't want to walk away from this having defined some, some secondary view. Not that secondary views aren't important. I I don't want us to walk away having come to a place where we've all settled on this idea that we're all premillennial or post-millennial, or all-millennial, and if you know what those mean, you'll you understand what I'm saying. I, I don't want us to, to do that. I want us to hone in on the essentials, the thing that all Christians who look forward to Jesus' return would agree on d- d- despite their secondary doctrines, their secondary views. Now, I'm not saying that those aren't important, and I'm not saying it's not important to study those things and and look for and watch for the second coming. I'm just saying that in this time, in this place, in this season, I want us to focus in on The primary issues, the primary doctrines. So last week, I think we hit the most, maybe the central theme, the central idea, maybe the most important doctrine we can as it comes to the end times. Jesus is coming back. He promised that to his disciples. It's a a theme that everyone In Christianity that trusts in Christ. It's it's a promise that we can all own, that we can all count on, that we can all look forward to. It is ours. He is going to return. That's the central theme of the end times views. That's the the central theme. Now, Jesus, as he taught that, was teaching a, a doctrine not to give disciples talking points that they could later then argue and see who was right and who knew more. He wasn't doing that. He taught them these things. It says to comfort them. That was John fourteen one through four. You see that he saw they were troubled, and he says, "Don't let your heart be troubled." And he teaches them. He gives them the promise that he will return. And so, so can we build doctrine? Can we understand that? Yes, we can. But, 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 but hear this: Jesus taught these things to comfort his disciples. But he didn't just teach to comfort, as we'll see this week. As we'll shift gears just a little bit, he taught to warn us. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. We'll read verses 1 through 13. If you've got your Bibles, you go ahead and turn there. The verses will be on the screen. It's a fairly popular parable. You'll probably, most of you, if, if not all of you, will recognize it at some level. He teaches this parable in the midst of what's called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus had told his disciples. His disciples met him. He's leaving the temple. His disciples meet him along the way. And they're like, hey, look at all these buildings of the temple and, and, and call attention to them. And Jesus says, yep are all going to be torn down. Nothing is going to remain. That's Matthew chapter 24, the very beginning of Matthew chapter 24. Then later, as they're heading out to Bethany, they come to the Mount of Olives. Jesus sits down on the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, he can look into Jerusalem, and he can see the temple. And his disciples come to him, and they say, Hey, Jesus, uh, you told us that's going to be destroyed. When's that going to happen? Now, that's the Seth version, and it doesn't play out exactly like it, but the meaning is there. <coughs> When's this going to happen? And he begins to unfold for them the destruction of the temple, the end of Jerusalem, and um, his second coming. And that's the Olivet Discourse. And he speaks on that. It's really one of the longest teachings we have, the longest ongoing teachings we have from Jesus. It's the fifth uh, and longest teaching that Matthew gives us. And in the midst of it, he comes to this parable, this popular parable about 10 virgins. And you could say that the theme of this whole, of this whole discourse, this whole teaching is be ready. He says it over and over throughout. In Matthew 24, he says it at least twice, and you're going to hear it today, that nobody knows the hour or the day, so be ready. It's a call to preparedness. It's a call to, to prioritize his return and look for it. And that's what we're going to see unfold as he warns us to be ready. Let's read the passage and we'll just see what the Lord has for us. Begin in verse 1 of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This parable is, is, is a call to be ready. This, it's it's an a, a illustration he uses of ten virgins to demonstrate that there is a time coming that you and I don't know with certainty, so be ready. It is a warning. He's wanting us to, to prepare, to be ready. See, Jesus knows something that many of us know, but maybe we don't think about often. Among his people, among those people that gather and say they belong to him, there are, are, are really a couple of kinds of people, three kinds of people. For example, in this room today, there, there's likely three kinds of people. There's Christians, people who believe, who have trusted in Jesus. Maybe today there's a non-Christian, a person who has never trusted, but yet knows they don't trust, and they're just trying to figure this out and trying to understand, just on the fringes of faith. But then as Jesus points out, that within the visible church, there are people who say they believe, say they trust in Jesus, but yet they're not trusting in Jesus. You see I think it's I think it's obvious that Jesus is the bridegroom he's the one he's representative uh, he's represented by the bridegroom but the but the focal point of the story is on these virgins that represent the visible church a group of people who are made up by these three by these three categories you see the visible church is the church we can see it's the church that's gathered it's the it's the local congregations it's the ones that we can look at and in that group are those people who say they're Christian and aren't, who say they're Christian and are, and who gather knowing they're not believers. The invisible church is the capital C church. It's the church that, that we can't see. It's the church that God looks at and knows His own. They are His, and, and no one can, can deny them from Him. But He's speaking here, and He's showing us the visible church, and He's warning us in the midst of this, be ready and he he uses ten virgins. we don't want to ap- apply or or go too far we don't want to we don't want to push too far into the parable and and try to denote that there's some moral or uh um uh moral standing for these for these young ladies it, it, it it's not there it's just demonstrating to us these professing believers that there's two kinds now, there's three kinds of people in the church, but there's two kinds of believers. Those who profess and are saying the truth, speaking the truth, and those who profess and aren't. And among these, there's common themes, there's common ideas, and in, in the parable you can see it. They, they were all part of the wedding party, so they all showed up, right? They were all all invited into the wedding party. Every one of these virgins had lamps. They had, they probably were wearing the same clothes. It's kind of like you know, when, when a when a bride has her bridesmaid standing, they 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 wear the same dresses. It's probably the same for them. They're all wearing the same clothes. They're carrying the same lamps. They're, they're getting ready. And they're all expecting the bridegroom. Every one of them was expecting the bridegroom. They were all waiting on him. They all went out to wait on him. They all slept. And we, we need to be careful. We don't want to read too much into the sleeping as if it's some negative comment on the whole whole church. The idea is that, that, that normal life, that the bridegroom tarried so long that normal life continued that the day-in, day-out routines of life, they would go on. They all did that. They all slept. And when they heard the call, they all woke up and got ready to go. Every one of them, it says, all of the virgins got up, trimmed their lamps, and they all got ready to go out. But it's in that moment at the call from the bridegroom that it becomes really obvious that there are some major distinctions between them, some major differences The wise thought forward enough to bring oil with them. They they knew, okay, well, the bridegroom is supposed to be here, but he may not come until late into the night. We better bring oil with us. And so they bring flasks of oil with them. They're ready. The foolish didn't. The wise were actually able to keep their torches burning. They all lit them. It says that they all lit their torches, but the foolish were not able to keep them burning. The wise were actually able to meet the bridegroom. We're not actually introduced to the bridegroom, right? I mean, but but we know. We know they went out and met the bridegroom, and and he invites them in. And the foolish were left out. The wise were brought into celebration. They, they got to go to the party. But the foolish found a closed door. And when they appealed to the ones inside, they were treated as if they were strangers. I think, I think that this is a clear warning to us. Jesus is coming. And He then warns us, He then warns us to prioritize our preparedness because the outcome is forever. That's the, that's the major theme I think that we need to to gain from this. I think that's the major point, the primary point that is being pressed on us through this parable. He is coming. Be ready. Make a priority of your preparedness. Make sure, make certain that you are ready because the outcome is forever. You will either be welcomed in or you will find a closed door. Uh, one of the commentators, I, don't, I really don't remember where I read this. I, I wish I could. One of, the, one of the commentators I read from drew an analogy from Noah on the ark. As he as he the animals came in and his family came in and just before the rains come down the door was closed and it demonstrates in Scripture that God closed and sealed the door. The door is closed and sealed. And the rains come down. Nobody else was getting in. They could have banged on the side of the ship. In fact, you know, we don't see this written in Scripture but there's no reason to believe that there weren't people screaming and wailing and banging on the sides of the ship. Let us in. Let us in. But the door was sealed. See, Jesus doesn't want us to be like the foolish virgins. He doesn't want us to miss out. This is a stern, straightforward, direct warning. But but don't hear Jesus being rude or mean. Don't, don't, don't hear Him condemning and, and, and just being uh, careless or, or um, un, unconcerned. He's telling us this now. He's telling us this today so that we can be ready when the day comes. He wants us to listen now. He wants us to hear it today. He wants us to be able to be prepared now. So that when the bridegroom comes, when the call goes out and we hear the call go out, that we're able to enjoy the celebration. I think he wants us to be like the wise virgins. I think he wants us to think forward, to be prepared, to be ready, to have what we need on that day. You've, you, maybe, maybe you've heard the saying. I don't, I don't even know who said this either, but uh, maybe you've heard the saying it, it's, it's knowledge to know that a tomato is a fruit, but it's wisdom not to put the tomato in a fruit salad. Right? It takes wisdom. I mean, it's the application of the knowledge. A tomato doesn't fit in a fruit salad with apples and pears and those little uh, marshmallows aren't fruit, but they are great inside those fruit salads. Imagine a tomato in there. It just doesn't fit. He wants us to, He wants us to have the knowledge. He wants us to, to, to have understanding. He wants us to, to know what he says. He wants us to know the truth. He wants us to have the teaching. But he wants us to apply it as well. He wants us to do something with it. He wants us to, to take it into ourselves and exercise that knowledge. He wants us to use the wisdom that comes from knowledge. But he knows. He knows that not all of us will. And let me just tell you, as a pastor, as the pastor, your pastor, that concerns me a great deal. As the one preaching this message to you today, whether I'm your regular pastor or not, it concerns me a great deal. Because this is what it teaches me. This is what it tells me that I can preach this now and I can preach it in the second service and I will see heads nod and I will see people give affirmation demonstrating that they agree with what I'm saying. But it's very possible that some of those very same people will not be doing anything with it. It scares me for you. It pushes me to say things, to, to challenge you, to, to to step up in your face and, and, and let you see the caution and let you see the warning. We can be so distracted. The, the, this world it, it so easily takes our attention away, it so easily draws us to other things. Hear this call. Heed this warning. there won't be a second chance. You see, when He comes, it will be too late. And there is not another moment that you are guaranteed than the very one you sit in. This is it. So hear, hear me, not trying to be rude or hurtful or crass. Hear the compassion and the mercy that I long for. I, I, I long for you to enjoy the blessings, to know, and with certainty, to to have the confidence that when He comes back, you get to walk through the door, you get to sit at His table, you get to enjoy the feast and 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 enjoy the 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 celebration. Don't be a foolish virgin from the outside looking in, looks the same as the rest of us. I think there's at least two direct cautions he gives us in this chapter or in this parable that that I think are, are, are very timely and very relevant for us today where we live at. But first he pushes at and points at religious effort. He cautions religious effort. See, religion is a poor substitute for salvation. Religion is a poor substitute for salvation. Think about what these virgins were doing. Think about where they were at. Think about think about all of them together and their similarities. They were all there. They were all doing the things that looked like they should be doing. They were they were doing what bridesmaids should be doing. They were they were involved in the in, in the um in the wedding. They were going out to wait together, just like good bridesmaids are supposed to do. And even when the call went out, they got up in the middle of the night and got ready. It says they all trimmed their lamps. You see, there's all this effort that they're, they're doing. There's all this all this work that they're putting forward. There's all these things in this parable that you see them doing, but their effort isn't enough because they're missing something. They're missing something very important. I think these these virgins, these five foolish virgins, have a form of religion. But it's not enough. See, your doctrinal knowledge, your theological perspectives, they don't save you. They can't save you. I can teach nonbelievers about the doctrines of Grace. I can, I can teach non-believers how to define words like propitiation and soteriology. I can teach non-believers about eschatology and all the views that go into it. I can teach them about premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. I can talk to them about the perspectives of prophecy that go towards the end times, whether we're going to be historists or we're going to be preterists or we're going to be futurists. I, I can talk to them about that. I can talk to a non-believer and I can give them information I can talk to a non-believer about the the attributes of God. I can talk to them about omnipotence. I can talk to them about, uh, about omnipresence. I can talk to them about the eternal attributes, the immutability of God. I can talk to them about those things. And I can give them those words that they can understand them. But that doesn't save them. It's easy to it's easy to overlook that especially in the circles we run because we love doctrine. We love theology. And it's good. It's not bad. But it's not best. Your church attendance, your Sunday morning attendance, your community group attendance, your belonging in a group of believers doesn't save you. You showing up on a regular basis and being here when the doors are open doesn't save you. Those virgins were present. Those five foolish virgins were present. They were participating. But it didn't save them. Your participation in neighborhood outreach. In fact, this week we get the opportunity to, to serve Cowden Elementary. We used to meet there. We built a great relationship with them. They call on us and, and we have a have an opportunity. Actually, the principal is supposed to be here for our Christmas Eve service. It's an exciting thing because our participation has brought the gospel to them and and, and, and we see bit by bit by bit we see the fruit of the work. But us going and standing around in that school and talking to people doesn't save us. See, they may may deceive us and they may deceive others. We may be able to look and and tell people, hey, look at the things I've done. Look at what I've done. I'm a bridesmaid. I belong to the wedding party. I'm, I'm one of his. but they won't save us. But listen, you see, if you've been saved by Jesus, if you've been saved by him, you don't have to substitute religion for salvation. And your salvation then gives way to effective religion. You see, as I talk about those things, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Should we study doctrine and theology? Should, should we know those things? Absolutely we should know those things. Absolutely we should study the end times. Absolutely we should study the immutability and attributes of God. Absolutely we should know the doctrines of grace. Absolutely we should study these things and we should, we should have a biblical understanding of these things. Absolutely we should. But they're only meaningful for those who are saved. Should we participate in church? Should we take, uh, take part in community group studies and, and doing life together, close life together that we might be served and serving others? Absolutely we should. But the fruit is only borne out as we are saved. Should we take part in our neighborhoods? Should we make this world a better place as much as possible? Absolutely we should. You see, here's what's happening. Here's what happens. As as we believe, as we have been saved, as we trust in the Savior and not in our religion, our religion actually becomes an opportunity for worship, an opportunity to adore Him, an opportunity to point glory to Him, an opportunity to actually serve others eternally rather than serve ourselves. But until the day we are saved, everything we do in in religious effort is about saving ourselves. It's driven by fear. There's no other way to do it. You might be able to say, well, I'm just doing good deeds for others. It really makes me feel good to do that. That's selfish. I'm doing good deeds because that's what Jesus has called us to And I want him to approve me. That's selfish. You see, religion without salvation is going to be selfish and it's going to be driven by fear. But salvation that leads to religion is going to do an eternal work for the glory of the God who sent his son to do what we couldn't do, to give us what we couldn't gain. You see, that's the beauty. And Jesus is warning us, do not be deceived by your religion don't miss the key piece that you need to make your religion effective. And see, I think the, the second thing he shows us, the second thing he warns us about, is salvation by association. And His people he was speaking to obviously struggled with this. They thought that they were that they were enjoying the covenant, enjoying the promise because of their lineage. They thought that they were were promised this this coming Messiah because of their lineage. That's what the Jewish people believed because they were children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is saying, "Don't, don't get deceived. Salvation is only available from God. Salvation is only available from God. We can proclaim it, but we cannot provide it. You see, I think people come to this point in the story where where the where the call comes out. The bridegroom is coming, and they all wake up, and and even the foolish virgins are are trimming their lamps and they're lighting their lamps and they're getting ready. And they're noticing, oh, we're not ready. We need some oil. Oh, you got you got some oil. We need some oil. And and I think right here people stumble and they think, why wouldn't those Wise virgins, give them oil. Aren't we called to give our all? Aren't we called to pour ourselves out? Uh, yeah, yeah, we are. But but that's not the point Jesus is trying to make here. Remember, He's pushing towards preparedness. Salvation only comes from God. That what what the what, what the wise virgins had wasn't transferable. Salvation is not transferable. I can proclaim it all day long. I can come to you all day long and say it's available in Jesus. But I cannot believe enough for you. I cannot confess your sins for you. I cannot repent enough for you. No one can. Just because your grandmother was a believer doesn't mean you are. Just because your husband or wife is a believer doesn't mean you are. see, no one. No one can do this for you. And each of us are responsible then to respond to God ourselves. So as those foolish virgins went to those wise virgins, it wasn't that those girls were being rude or crass. They literally couldn't give them what they needed. Just like I can't give you what you really need, I've got to send you to the dealer. I've got to send you to the source. See, salvation is only available from God. I can proclaim it, but I can't provide it. You can't provide it. At some point, we all must deal with Him, the one who can. So certainly, I can lead you there. Others could lead you there. You can lead others there. But at some point, at some point, Everybody has to get with the dealer. They have to get with the source. They have to confess. They have to believe. They have to repent. And so really I, I think these warnings, these, these these challenges us for to be to, to, to be ready, I, I think they should strike in our hearts a question, really. How do we do that? How do we get ready? How do we, how do we get ready? How do we be prepared? If, if it's to be our priority, what, what are we to do? I think the sad truth is, is there, there may be a person sitting in this room that thinks, oh, I just gotta do better. I gotta do more. That's exactly what Jesus is saying, don't do. It's not about doing more, but it's about what you believe. It's not about what you do so much as it is what you believe. In John chapter 6, Jesus has fed the multitude and the the multitude, he he leaves and the multitude follows him. They come to him the next day and they're like, hey, where'd you go? We we, we want some more food. He's like, yeah, you're coming to me for the wrong reasons. Again, it's the Seth version, the meaning's there. And they're like, well, what what do we do? What is this work that gives way to eternal life? Jesus answered them, John 6, 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Believe. How do you get ready? You believe. You trust Jesus. Do you remember from John 14, 1 through 4 that we read just last week? He said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe God. Believe also in Me. It's about trusting Him. It's about believing him again. In Mark 1:15, as his as, as his public ministry begins, he comes out and he says, "The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe." Well, wait a minute. Is, is he telling us two different things? Like one, we got to repent and believe, and the other is believe. And he's saying the same thing two different ways. Repentance and belief that go hand in hand. You really can't have one without the other because the idea of repentance, the the literal meaning of that word repentance is changing your mind. It's have a change of mind. A lot of people teach that it's about a change of action, but trust me, the Greek word, you go and do the study yourself. Don't trust me. Go do the Greek word study yourself. The word means change your mind. Literally down deep inside of you at the base level, change your mind about what you believe. Romans tells us that we believe lies instead of the truth. Behind every sin is a belief and a lie. Behind every lack of acknowledgement of God is a belief and a lie. And Jesus is saying, repent, change your mind about the lies you believe. We believe all kinds of them. We believe that religion will save us, and so we work hard to save ourselves. I would suggest that there's not a member of our church that would admit openly that there's something we can do to gain our salvation. But there's a lie I think that I'm concerned with us believing is that there are things we can do to maintain our salvation. That we believe that God saved us, but that we don't believe he's powerful enough to keep us safe. Those are lies. Repentance is changing your mind about that, recognizing it's a lie, and trusting in the truth. And that's where the belief comes in. Repent means to change your mind about the lies you believe. And belief is about trusting the truth that Jesus is the only way to the Father. There is nothing better than Him. There is nothing more satisfactory than Him. Change your mind about the lies and believe the truth that the Father did send the Son to do for us what we couldn't do, to give us what we couldn't gain. Well, can we be sure of this? How can we know That we're ready. The answer is the same. Repent and believe. Change your mind about the lies you believe. If people like you, that's not going to satisfy you. If you have enough money in the bank, your future will not be secure. If you can just control the circumstances and situations of your life, you will have peace. Those are our lives change your mind trust in jesus he has your past he has your present and he has your future trust in him if you want to be certain of your salvation if you want to be certain that you are ready believe in him trust him and that belief if it's real will give way to action a uh, faith, action without faith is is fruitless. It, it doesn't really do anything, right? Remember, religion is a poor substitute for salvation, but salvation gives way to effective religion. Action without faith is fruitless. It, it won't accomplish what you want it to accomplish. But faith that doesn't lead to action is also false. You can't say you believe if you're not willing to act on it. You see, what the call in this passage is to believe so completely that Jesus is coming, that you prioritize that in your life, that you make it a matter of first importance, that you set aside your hopes and dreams in this world for the one to come. That you no longer store up treasures here on earth, but store them up in heaven. You see, the idea is is that this this hope that we have, this promise that Jesus is going to return that comforts us, also gives us the confidence that everything that sucks in this life is just temporary. So act on it. Real belief, real faith will do that. It will lead you to act. And I think it will lead you to act not just for yourself, but for others, because the fruit of the Spirit... For those who truly believe, the fruits will be evident. There will be a love for people. Not just the emotional, oh, I love you, I love you too. Not not just that. But that willing to die for the benefit of another kind of love. The The willingness to set yourself aside. You know where that comes from? From the Holy Spirit. You know where the Holy Spirit comes in is when you believe in Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You should be seeing these kinds of things effectual in your life, coming out of your life because you believe. Be ready. You can be ready. Repent and believe. Do not wait. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the confidence we can have in the return of Your Son. I Thank You for the promises You've given us in Scripture. I thank You for the knowledge that we can attain. I, I thank You, God, for minds to understand. I would pray right now in this moment for, for hearts that would receive the truth. And they would trust in it. I I would pray, Father, that you would encourage those who are believers that they wouldn't experience further doubt because they are warned, but but they would find confidence in what you have already done and confidence in the days ahead. And, Father, I would pray for, for gentle and gracious conviction for those who are yet to believe. For those people who have been professing faith, but whose faith is only a form of religion would you open their eyes to this warning today would you do this work in them now father i ask it plead with you for those that are here that have have never believed who have never trusted, would you bring them to life in this moment? Would you regenerate their hearts? Would you give them faith to say that your Son is the only way? God, would we as a church heed your call? Would you encourage us towards heeding and hearing your call, your warning, to be ready? It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.